0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Whether you're listening to the live broadcast or the podcast, I'm so grateful you're part of my audience. If I could ask one small favor, that is, if you find value in the things that we talk about, the ideas that are tossed around, or even, you know, some of the doors that, uh, that are open for you into seeing the world in a slightly different way, would you be so kind as to uh, tell a friend? Okay, maybe tell a couple dozen dozen friends, but let them know that there is an alternative out there to some of the same old red state, blue state, dead horse beating that uh, we've all grown accustomed to, lo, these many years. Got a lot of great stuff going on today. I want to start with one of the obvious things that uh, is on a lot of people's minds. This is uh, the President's Day uh, 2020 broadcast. So uh, yesterday... I guess the president was in a celebratory mood because not only did he buzz the Daytona 500 in Air Force One, and the, the video footage of this is, it has to be seen to be believed. Um, I don't know what kind of special dispensation he got from the FAA, but that uh, Air Force One was probably about 800 feet above ground level as as it uh, flew over the Daytona racetrack. And, uh, of course, hundreds of thousands of people gathered there uh, for one of the biggest races of the year. And as if that wasn't enough, President Trump was the Grand Marshal of the Daytona 500. So he ended up taking a lap around the track in his presidential limo. Now, some people were like, "Well, you know, technically he was below the yellow line, so that's cheating all right i don't I don't know what the handling characteristics are of a twenty two thousand pound presidential limo nicknamed "The Beast." but I'm guessing that uh, if if they were taking a lap at let's just give a conservative estimate of about a hundred miles an hour, that's pretty fast for a twenty two thousand pound vehicle. I'm sure he had very skilled drivers. one friend the perpetual suck on a lemon and then give you a reply friend, looking at the uh, sour side of things. I bet that was a nightmare for the secret service. I don't know. I bet for some of them it was. And and yet uh, there, there they all were in this nice tight little column, you know, following the president around the track. I have to think that some of them were probably having fun, but then again, I'm a more glass half full than glass half empty kind of guy. Now, having said this, Um, You know, I can understand the heartburn on the part of people who are saying, why would the president use official governmental apparatus like Air Force One or, you know, the limousine, the beast to go out there and uh, basically appeal to the masses or pander to the masses? And I do agree with him on one thing here. If, if it wasn't a political stunt, it was missing a marvelous opportunity. This was possibly the, the best uh, pre-election uh, stump speech, if you will, that I've seen a candidate do. On the other hand, if you were one of the people who cheered when President Obama lit the White House in rainbow colors to celebrate the Supreme Court, saying that no, same-sex marriage is a go for every state in the union... You might want to check and see if there's a little hypocrisy going on there. Um, I'm not condoning either one of them. I'm just I'm kind of sitting back and marveling. And look, this is this is the takeaway. I I am not all in for Trump. But I think what we saw yesterday and, and I, I would argue it was an extremely successful appeal to his voter base. No doubt about it. There are there, even people who are probably on the wall So to speak, we're we're going, uh, wow, look at this president. He he is definitely connecting with the people uh, at at a grassroots and, yes, populist level. And so from that standpoint, it was uh, it was a very savvy thing to do. Was it the right thing to do? I wouldn't go that far, but uh, nobody could ever accuse Donald Trump of not playing to his voting base. He does it incredibly. And this is why most of his campaign events, most of the rallies that he has had so far have been absolutely filled to capacity. A fact that is not lost on Democrats who are still so busy trying to out virtue signal one another that uh, they don't know which way is up at this point. Oh, and we'll maybe take a moment here and, and talk about uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg's uh, floating the, t- the test balloon of, well, maybe I'll ask Hillary Clinton to be my uh, running mate. I mean, everybody immediately was like, wow, I hope his life insurance is paid up. Look, whether you agree or disagree with Donald Trump taking a lap at the Daytona 500 or doing a buzz of the uh, the Daytona f- Speedway. It just it just proves the strange, surreal times that we live in. And by that, I mean that, uh, yeah, the elections really are nothing more than a gigantic reality show. And so it's, it's probably fitting that one of the bigger reality stars of uh, our time, Donald Trump, is uh, sitting at the top of the heap right now. The man knows how to work the audience. He knows how to rally his base. And he did it in uh, absolutely surreal form yesterday. I'm not angry about it. I'm just sitting back going, "Wow. So this is this is what it's come to." I mean, you know, look, try try to put this into try to put this into a less modern perspective. Can you imagine uh, let's say Abraham Lincoln showing up to a uh, uh, uh to uh, Churchill Downs, right? To to the where the Kentucky Derby is is held. Let's assume that this was before the uh, unpleasantness. Can you imagine him taking a lap around the track, whether it's in the presidential carriage or maybe even riding uh, a thoroughbred himself around the track? I'm having a hard time seeing that. I don't know. You know, you know, maybe this is going to establish a new president. You know, the president throwing out the first ball at the World Series. OK, we've seen that before, but. This uh, this definitely is an indicator that we are. Uh, we are no longer in the America that uh, we've we've been taught to believe that we are in, and uh, we're we're living in a gigantic reality show. But the trouble is, you you can't vote yourself off, or well, maybe can you? <laughs> I I don't know. Very interesting stuff. Let's take a minute here to uh, address uh, the Michael Bloomberg Hillary combination. You know, I I knew someone in twenty sixteen who was probably one of the most faithful Bernie Sanders supporters I've ever met. And I don't mean fanatical. I mean, she just she really supported Bernie and really believed, hey, Bernie's got the answers. Bernie has the compassion. He is going to make sure that the little guy is being watched out for, which I believe is a, is a large component of the support that Bernie Sanders has been enjoying um, thus far, you know, over the years in his presidential campaigning. And I remember how upset she was. When the Democratic Party screwed Bernie over so blatantly and so obviously, and and then forced him to stand up there and endorse Hillary Clinton. Now, my friend, you know, closed ranks. and Well, you know, we've got to defeat Donald Trump. He is the worst thing. He's literally Hitler, the worst thing that's ever going to happen to us. And so she, she fell in line. But... You know, because of her, I paid a little bit closer attention. I actually watched to see what what is Bernie's reaction going to be when he has to endorse Hillary Clinton as his party's nominee. And I watched it and it was not pretty. He had the look of a guy standing there with uh, an invisible knife stuck up against his ribs. Go ahead. Say the words. Say them. I mean, he, he absolutely looked like he was under duress as he urged Democrats to close ranks. So let's just uh, suppose that Bernie's uh, supporters, the Bernie bros, as they're sometimes called, have uh, have actually seen a resurgence. And And I'm not a political analyst, but my perception is he's been doing all right. He has actually been motivating his base. And if anything, his numbers have probably grown. How do you think it's going to look to his supporters if he gets screwed over again, not The first time, but for the second time, in order to hand the nomination to a billionaire. How many times have you heard Bernie railing against billionaires and everything that they have done to uh, allegedly, you know, plunder the wealth of this country? I know it's wrong, but humor me. This is this is where Bernie's coming from. And this is where a lot of his base is coming from. The oligarchs are going to take Bernie out of the running, and instead put in a billionaire with his establishment handler, who would be uh, Hillary Clinton if, if in fact this comes to pass. Wow, that's pretty blatant. And of course, uh, you know I I agree with the people who are joking. Wow, Michael Bloomberg is really brave because you know he's probably not going to last through the uh, post inaugural luncheon. He'll choke to death on a ham sandwich or something. He will he will not survive the end of the day before Madam President has been sworn in. I know that sounds like a cold thing to say, but let's face it, uh, people who have stood in the way of the Clintons over the years have had a very nasty habit of uh, how how will I put this? Uh, taking a walk through Fort Marcy Park, shall we say. All right. Well, that's enough political intrigue for the moment, but I thought I would uh, throw some observations out there. Trump taking a uh, victory lap, apparently for surviving uh, impeachment at the Daytona 500, buzzing the raceway in Air Force One. Yep. Yep. These are the times we live in. They just get more interesting by the day. This is Loving Liberty. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm going to ask you, please hold your calls until the next hour. I will open them up. And actually, I know for a fact that I'm going to be hearing from uh, one of our regular listeners. Uh, Jared is going to be calling in to talk about something that's taking place here in my home state of Utah that I hope will. I hope it it not only plucks your heartstrings, but I hope it gets you just a little bit mad because uh, there is a municipality here uh, in the area where I live going after a family business. And it's it's just it's a classic example of, hey, we can hook you on technicalities. We can make your life miserable. We can drive you out of business if we choose. And you don't think about this, at least on the local level, most of the time we think, oh, well, you know, on the local level, you at least have some freedom because these people are responsive to you. It's the federal level that insists you have to bend the knee. Well, in this case. I, uh, I think you're going to be surprised at just how how blatant this uh, this going after this family business has become. And they're shutting them down. And, and some people, people who uh, believe that anything not under the control of the state is somehow out of control. They're going to probably cheer it for the rest of us, though. There's a great object lesson and a rather painful one that we should be paying attention to. All right, let's let's uh, let's jump back into the idea of federal overreach. I just saw this uh, article on intellectualtakeout.org, Trump's Big Bet on Career and Technical Education. This is one of these things that gives me kind of mixed feelings, because on the one hand, I really believe technical education and career education, you know, VOTEC stuff, is vastly overlooked. We have so many people out there pursuing, you know, academic degrees and law degrees and so forth. But uh, people with actual skills to keep the world running seem to be looked down on. Well, son, the reason you go to school is so you don't have to do what that poor welder is doing. Well, if you saw that poor welder's paycheck, you might change your tune. This is an article from Sean M. Doherty, and uh, he talks about how President Trump has proposed one of the largest increases in funding for career and technical education in history. Now, he says as an education policy researcher who studies the economic and employment impact of career and technical education in high school. He believes that this proposal has a lot of potential to open up new job opportunities, especially for students who may not want to go to college or at least not right away. He says, my research has found that the best investment in career and technical education is when it's targeted towards schools that design all instruction around developing career paths, say, as an electrician or maybe a nurse's assistant. Career and technical education can also improve high school graduation and employment when it's integrated with core subjects and offers work based learning. Now, I think we can agree. This kind of education is a good thing. The part that's a little bit of a sticky wicket for me is, should the federal government be the one leading out on this? I'm not sure that that's an enumerated power of the federal government. Spending would double under the president's proposal. The White House wants to nearly double the total federal commitment to provide states with funds for career and technical education. We're talking from about $1.2 billion in the current fiscal year to roughly $2.1 billion for fiscal 2021. Now, this proposal marks the first time in more than 20 years that the federal investment in career and technical education could change in a meaningful way after declining for the last two decades. For instance, back in 2004, total funding through the Carl D. Perkins Act, that's the federal law that deals with career and technical education spending, was $1.7 billion. By fiscal 2020, it had dropped to $1.2 billion, and adjusting for inflation makes the drop even larger. Student participation in career and technical education had also declined during the era of No Child Left Behind, Remember that? The 2002 law that required increasing the percentage of students proficient in math and reading by 2014. Meanwhile, an emphasis on testing dominated education policy during that same time period, which maintained focus on tested subjects like math and reading and less on career development. Now, the proposal also calls for allocating $83 million to competitive grants to states. Proposing competitive grants suggests that the administration will look to fund states with the most innovative proposals. And this is in contrast to just giving out money based on how many students a state may serve, which is how most federal funds for technical education are allocated. Now, Trump also wants to double fees associated with H-1B visas. These are the visas that allow for the hiring of temporary workers from abroad, but who come here with high skills that are in short supply in the U.S. This hike could raise an additional hundred million dollars or more. The idea seems to be to use revenue collected from the programs that use talent from abroad to invest in educating students here in the United States. Now, the author says research shows that students who take three or more courses in one career pathway earn more money in the decade after high school than similar students who did not take a group of related career and technical education courses. And the research can't fully explain why these earning gains occur. However, it could be that the specific skills that those students gain in career and technical education are likely to be rewarded with higher wages if those skills are in demand. Now, by comparison, the only technical education programs that research has shown lead to improved graduation rates and higher wages are whole school models. That would be approaches to technical education where all students participate in some form of vocational or technical education. The author says most students have access to technical education at traditional high schools or centers that are shared across school districts and where students spend part of their school day. In fact, this is the most common way students access technical education in the U.S. and where expansion is therefore most likely to occur. But there is no strong evidence that these models are effective in improving high school graduation or employment or even earnings after school. All of the best evidence comes from specialized high schools, like those in Connecticut and Massachusetts, or from career academies which combine academic and technical coursework and then organize it around a common theme. He finishes by pointing out fewer than five percent of the nation's students have access to a specialized career and technical education student school. Rather, if ed- innovation grants were designed to induce increased access to specialized career and technical education, high schools or high quality career academies, that could be money well spent. Again, this is from Sean M. Doherty published on intellectual takeout org. I'll post a link to this article in the show notes, and I would encourage you to look at it. It's about, I, I don't know, it seems like a good idea, but again, I, I, I'm kind of a purist when it comes to this. I always want to ask the question, is this really something that falls within the purview of the federal government? And if the answer is, well, uh, we're not sure, or uh, I'm not quite sure where that's found in the Constitution, then maybe they shouldn't be doing it, even if it is a good idea. See, this is, this is the test of our willingness to adhere to the Constitution, The contract which brought our federal government into existence. There may be things that uh, we think, hey, that's a that's a great idea. Why, that would benefit me or that would benefit even a majority of people. But it may still be unconstitutional, not because it's unpopular, but because it's simply not an enumerated power to any of the, the branches of the federal government. Now, that's a piffling thing when people want their way, right? I mean, you know, we all want what we want, and okay, well, you know, we may not break the rules, but we can at least bend it a little bit here in order to get that. I'm fully in supportive of career and technical education, and I I love to see people who have discovered how powerful this is at opening up opportunities to them. I Look, confession here, I have a friend who has taught uh, welding first at... Uh, at a high school. And now he actually is teaching welding at a uh, local applied technology college. And he's a brilliant educator. I mean, not just the technical aspects of here's what makes a good bead. You know, here's, here's how to weld this material or that material. This man is, is the kind of educator who approaches what he's teaching with the idea that uh, these are skills that will help you become the person you are to become. Not that you're going to be defined purely as I am Bob the welder, but simply to to be a better person. He's also very freedom minded. and, And this enables his students upon completing their technical training, which often takes less than a year to go out into the workplace and be earning real wages, like support a family kind of wages. That's pretty exciting. And the fact that he's teaching them character along with those technical skills tells me they're going to be prepared for the future better than some of their academic counterparts. we got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Again, please hold your calls for the next hour. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm so glad that you've joined me. We've been talking a little bit about federal overreach, and I wanted to dust off a column I wrote some years ago. This would have been back about, well, actually, it was almost exactly four years ago. In 2016, the article's titled How the Supreme Court Came to Rule Us, but it covers more than just the Supreme Court. I want to use this as kind of a discussion point for how did the federal government become Such a prominent feature in everything that's going on in our lives. Now, at the time I wrote this article, uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia had just passed away. And, you know, if you remember this happening in an election year, it caused a lot of concern. Well, the president, whoever is appointed, they should wait until after the presidential election to make sure that uh, we're getting a Supreme Court justice that actually is representative of the administration or representative of the American people's mandate, blah, blah, blah. The idea being that uh, it better work to the advantage of whoever wins, which we all knew at that point was going to be Hillary, Right. I pointed out at that time, lovers of liberty are mourning the loss of one of the last strict constructionist justices in American history. After all, Scalia regarded the Constitution as a binding legal contract that defined and enumerated the upper limits of power for the national government it called into existence. On the other hand, there were statists salivating at the prospect of a more activist appointment to replace Scalia. And they're counting on somebody who would rule by social fad or rather than the actual text or in original intent of the document. And I, who did we get? Did we is that when we got Neil Gorish? I can't remember. It's been long. enough. You know, President Trump has actually appointed more justices and and, and, and federal court judges. I've seriously lost count. So I, I don't even remember who it was that was appointed. But I do remember this at the time that I wrote the article. My point was, look, what both sides are missing is the necessary historical context to understand how did our government devolve to the place where we look at any Supreme Court appointment as, uh, you know, as they're going to control the government. A simple majority of nine lawyers will be imposing what they see as, you know, the correct path for America on society, because that is not the system that the founders gave us. So here's a little bit of a, a civics lesson, and I'm, I'm not trying to be pedantic in sharing this with you. This is something that I had to learn outside of the textbooks and outside of the civics, quote, education I received in high school. You have to remember that the, founder, the founders created a federal system. That's what the states ratified. That is what no longer exists in America. And the destruction of the enumerated, separated, and balanced powers of the Constitution has taken a lot of generations to get us to the point where we are today. The kicker is, for those who say, well, it all started under Trump, or it all started under Obama, or Clinton, or whomever, it started way earlier than most people think. So go back to when the Constitution was first ratified. It was the states that balanced the power of the new national government. And James Madison used the term national to describe the powers of an independent central federal, federal government. I'm sorry, an independent central government. He used the term federal to refer to those powers that came from the contributions of the states. And it's important we understand that difference. Because it means that the national government was dependent upon the states, not the other way around. And just as an example of this, U.S. senators at that time were appointed or elected by state legislatures up until 1913 and the ratification of the 17th Amendment. But what this meant was those senators had allegiance to the states they represented and not to Washington. Now, in practical terms, what that meant was with the states controlling half of the national legislature, it was up to the states to decide whether or not they would implement national policies, and that included determining whether a law passed by Congress was constitutional or not. It also meant the national government was duty-bound to follow the states rather than dictate to them. And here's how Thomas Jefferson described the reasoning behind this structure. Quote, The capital and leading object of the Constitution was to leave with the states all authorities which respected their citizens only, and to transfer to the United States those which respected citizens of foreign or other states, to make us several, meaning separate, as to ourselves, but one as to all others. What a beautiful explanation, by the way, end quote there. He's, now, this, uh, the often misquoted supremacy clause of the Constitution clearly states that its supremacy only applies in pursuance of those constitutional powers enumerated for the branches of the national government. It was never a blank check for national authority. In fact, what Jefferson feared most was the consolidation of powers to the national government, followed by the inevitable consequence of corruption. I think time has proven those concerns to be 100% right. This is why the distribution of powers was so essential to good government. By consolidating power to a centralized national government, the power of the individual states could be stolen and used to bypass the limits of the Constitution. Now, this brings us to the Barbary versus Madison case, where this first major shift to consolidating power away from the states occurred. And it's one reason why the Supreme Court still exercises power it was never intended to have to this day. So in a nutshell, if you've forgotten, well, what were were the circumstances behind Marbury v. Madison? Consolidationists had pushed for John Adams to make a whole bunch of lame duck appointments following the election of 1800. That's because uh, Thomas Jefferson was was elected in that election. And the five-year appointments were intended to allow them to stay. I'm sorry, when was Jefferson... Sorry, Jefferson followed Madison. So in making these appointments, they were trying to get that five-year appointment to allow them to stay in control through the next election. Now, not all of the appointments could be made before Thomas Jefferson took office. And when William Marbury's appointment was withdrawn, he went to the Supreme Court saying, he has to appoint me to this office. Now, the justices of the court, led by John Marshall ruled that, uh, look, we understand the Constitution better than the man who actually wrote it, meaning James Madison. So they gave themselves the power of judicial review, in which one branch of the national government provided a check on the other branches of that government. Now, keep in mind, the Supreme Court was a creation of the Constitution, and yet now it was putting itself above the Constitution, saying, I'll tell you whether the rest of the government that was also created by the Constitution is acting according to its creator. So the states called a federal government into existence through a compact we know as the U.S. Constitution. Now, one part of their creation, the Supreme Court, would decide what was and wasn't constitutional. And what that did was it crowded the states out as a check on the national government. The rule established by the Marshall Court took precedence over liberty, which we have to remember was the primary goal behind the founding of the republic. But this ruling by the Marshall Court in Marbury v. Madison put liberty in the back seat and put the rules up front, saying, Don't worry, you can trust us. We'll, we'll tell you what the rules are. The 14th Amendment, imposed in the Reconstruction era following the war between the states, codified this alleged moral superiority of the national government by declaring that the Bill of Rights applied to everyone no matter what state governments were doing. And by the time the 17th Amendment was ratified and state legislatures were no longer able to either appoint or elect U.S. senators, that relegated the states into little more than administrative offices of an all-powerful national government. And if you can't see how this shift in power has fed the abuses and overreach of our unfettered national government today, you're either not paying attention or you're willfully trying to ignore it because it's inconvenient. It's a system that's unlikely to fix itself. And I ask you to keep that in mind as we see yet another general election approaching. Candidates are simply trying to control the Washington beast. No one is trying to put its collar back on it. But the answer for the tyranny of consolidation is found in decentralization. And that's something that requires some pretty serious moral courage on the part of the states and their people. Because the only other options are to either continue accepting official abuse as our lot in life or to simply distract ourselves into a state of deliberate blindness so we don't have to accept the responsibility for what's happened. So we all have choices to make. Few of them are easy choices, but it helps, us to under- it helps if we understand exactly what we have lost so far. There was a time when I really believed That the states would eventually reach a breaking point and say, you know what, we will stand up and assert our powers under the Ninth and 10th Amendments and, and put the federal dog back on its leash or put it back into its kennel and make sure it was operating the way it was supposed to. But there's too much federal funding at stake. The states receive billions and billions of dollars from the federal government, which come with strings attached, which work as, you know, the carrot and the stick. Well, if you want this money, you're going to do what we tell you to do. And the corruption that uh, permeates the federal system has trickled down into the state governments. It's it's not going to happen, even at the state level. I mean, it's it's just not. It's got to happen at a more individual level. But that starts with being A, informed, and B, willing to stand and assert your rights. Got to take a break. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. right. We are back. Welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde in the final segment for the first hour. Again, I'm going to ask you hold your calls for the next hour. We do have a lot to discuss. Uh, This is one that uh, that kind of surprised me. I don't know if you uh, if you remember this, but uh, I love Lucy. I mean, the old TV show. I grew up watching reruns of it, but um, I never realized that there was some very sensitive material that came out about the time that uh, Lucille Ball's character gave birth to Ricky Ricardo Jr. In fact, uh, if you remember, some of you are old enough to remember that this was a cause for great concern. Pregnancy? Do we even acknowledge pregnancy on TV? Keep in mind, in 1953, that was a big deal. Well, There's an excellent article by Anders Koskinen. This is on intellectualtakeout.org. Lucy doesn't love sensitivity readers. And it opened my eyes to a, a little slice of our history that I was not aware of. But it also has kind of a parallel in our time. He says, in 1953, Lucille Ball's character in I Love Lucy, Lucy Ricardo, gave birth to Ricky Ricardo Jr., bringing an end to perhaps the most famous television pregnancy ever. In the episode, Lucy Goes to the Hospital, 44 million viewers tuned in, covering nearly 72% of all American homes which owned a television. Now keep in mind, in 1953, that was a big deal. The saga of Lucy's television pregnancy was concurrent with the real-life birth of Ball's son. When they discovered they were pregnant, Ball and Desi Arnaz, her husband and co-star, fully expected the show to be canceled. Well, instead, their producer convinced them to incorporate it into the show's plot. CBS and several sponsors had reservations, however, and and they finally agreed as long as every script for every episode for the entirety of Lucy's pregnancy was reviewed for sensitive content by a priest, a minister and a rabbi. I know it sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. And can you imagine the outrage if that were taking place today? Religion interfering in artistic expression? Oh, Hollywood would have a meltdown. And Anders Koskinen says, surely such a practice would no longer be considered in our enlightened and open-minded age. Surely artists should be free to practice their craft. And no one would dream in today's world of imposing such dogma upon the right to self-expression. And yet they do. And while this process isn't led by a pastor, priest, or rabbi, it's still steeped in religiosity and moralism. But today these censors are called sensitivity readers. Rather than looking to ensure moral stances on social issues, these sensitivity readers are looking to enforce politically correct depictions of people on issues of race, gender, sexuality, and other identity politics issues an extension and professionalization of cancel culture, sensitivity readers are sometimes hired at author or publisher request. Many times, however, people without any intent of helping an author take it upon themselves to protect the public from allegedly racist, sexist, Islamophobic, transphobic, or misogynistic writings. And that leads to some rather ironic situations, especially since complaints that publishing is still hideously middle class and white are rife. One would think these arbiters of virtue would celebrate minority authors, perhaps even tolerate a few faux pas where privileged white middle class authors would be excommunicated. Not so. Anders Koskinen says this brand of cancel culture knows no boundaries. <laughs> and it works against other aims of the diversity crowd. 26 year old Emily Wen Zhao is an example of this. In 2019, Zhao was getting ready to publish her debut novel, Blood Air, which earned a six figure advance. But instead, a storm of angry commentators overwhelmed this young immigrant woman of Asian descent, and Zhao told her publishers to cancel the scheduled June release. The cancel culture crowd claimed that the book dealt with race and slavery in an insensitive manner. Now, what makes this ironic is many of them never even read the novel. Taking time to reread her novel, Zhao decided her critics were incorrect in their attacks. Blood Air was released in November with only minor revisions by Zhao. One of Zhao's leading critics, sensitivity reader and author Kosoko Jackson fell victim to a cancellation of his own. Jackson, a queer black writer, wrote A Place for Wolves, which was supposed to be a gay romance novel featuring American teenagers set in the midst of the Kosovo War. Well, somehow creating an Albanian Muslim villain and setting a romance story in the midst of a genocide was not the most popular choice for sensitivity readers or for the mob that inhabits Twitter. Jackson pulled his novel from publication. Novels and other art forms today may not have the priest, pastor, and rabbi ensuring compliance like I Love Lucy did, but they've picked up censors which hold to their own religion of political correctness. All they care about is the sense of power they get from enforcing arbitrary dogma upon others. And that arbitrariness is where modern censors are much more dangerous than those of America's past. And Anders Koskinen says, while the writers of I Love Lucy roughly knew what lines to toe with regards to Lucy's pregnancy, today's writers are subject to ever-changing rules of what constitutes gross and minor violations of politically correct views. And he says, such an environment must be terrifying to work in. Yeah, I would agree. It's It's like, you know, wearing tap shoes in a minefield in a cow pasture. No matter where you step... You're going to be in trouble. That would make it very tough to, to be able to, to practice your art with any degree of confidence. Got another example here. I'll share this one quickly. This is from uh, Michael Smith. I, I like this guy's analysis of so many things. He pointed out uh, yesterday, there's an article in the Salt Lake Tribune titled on raising a son minus the toxic masculinity. Ready for some irony? This article was written by a woman married to another woman. Now, he asks the question, what could what possibly could two lesbians know about what it means to be a true man in a time when just having a penis is prima facie evidence that you're guilty of something, anything of which a second wave feminist accuses you? Here's a, here's a quote from the article. Now, I don't mean to sound like second, like I don't mean to sound second wave feminist with all men are bad sentiments. My experiences alone prove that wrong. But the reality that most crime, war and violence has been perpetuated at the hands of men hasn't escaped me. It has been my experience, my personal experience, when people feel compelled to tell you what they aren't, Michael says, that's a sure sign that that's exactly what they are. And these are always followed by the but I don't think all men are bad, but they are. Now, he says, as I read the various op ed pieces, alternately praising Mitt Romney, he's an old time hero to the standard. Everybody's going to die in a burning, freezing hellscape unless we tax them to death. First, climate change is more than a moral imperative to the ubiquitous Trump bashing uh, with uh, he's building a wall between ourselves and reality. He says, I've I just saw, I had reconf- reconfirmation of a position I've held for a long time. Now, he's picking particularly on the left, but hear him out here. He says the left is a self-loathing death cult, and that's not hyperbole. They are Jim Jones, poisoned Kool-Aid, Cambodian Killing Field-level misanthropes. They hate everybody, including themselves. They've adopted a moral code that is unlike any of which I am aware. Based on envy, hate, and exclusion, they use it to occupy a high ground that was neither won or ceded to them in intellectual combat what they believe is less a righteous and spiritual moral code and more a humanistic code of total conquest, very similar to those held by Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot. They live in a world where Barack Obama is a saint, Hillary Clinton is innocent, Russian collusion was real, and socialism works. In other words, a world straight out of a Dr. Seuss book. Now, I don't like to get caught up with uh, the left-right paradigm paradigm, Because there's an awful lot of statism and absolutism on the right that's just as destructive to personal liberty and private property and freedom of conscience and freedom of association as you'll find on the left. But this is a pretty accurate statement nonetheless. Even though my friend here is not picking on the the right per se, He is making a very valid point about how the left tends to see itself. And you can see this in the meltdown as to to how they're they're trying to choose who will be the contender to represent their their party as the nominee in this year's presidential election. It's it's all about virtue signaling and everybody's got to show. Well, look, I mean, how many times how many times does Pete Buttigieg have to kiss his uh, his significant other, his spouse on the mouth, you know, for the TV cameras? I get it. I get it. It's you know, it's it's beating people over the head with the look. Look how uh, how connected we are. Look how how virtuous we are. How in how tolerant and how inclusive we are. And it's tiresome for people who are tired of being told that. Look, just because I don't believe that same sex marriage is a good thing or that it's even a, a valid you know representation of traditional marriage. That doesn't mean that I hate gay people. It doesn't mean that I want to, you know, throw them off buildings. It just simply means I hold a differing point of view. But, oh, heaven forbid, somebody says something like that publicly, says that I just I can't accept that. The cancel culture mob will hound them, try to destroy them, do everything in their power to punish them simply for holding a peaceful, albeit alternate viewpoint Do I really even have to try to explain what's wrong with that point of view? Live and let live is a very valid concept. Unfortunately, it's not something that very many people on the left or the right seem willing to embrace today. How do we go about changing that?